Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Change the Conversations. I am Amy Vanderlinden with Moment of Truth Physical Therapy, pelvic health therapist, and podcast host. Um, I really started this podcast. I have certain topics that I'm passionate about changing the conversation on, and I really just love speaking with other guests. And Kate is no stranger to the podcast. This is actually part two. Um, We had done a podcast with her a couple weeks back on trauma and grief and just talking about a lot of the things that happen in life and how we handle that and motherhood and burdens we carry. And we went on several little journeys in that conversation, which was amazing. And we immediately agreed that there needed to be a part two and a part three. And I'm sure that this got rescheduled a couple of times. I'm sure it actually is no coincidence that it also just happens. I just finished recording our sex workshop and So Kate and I already just in chatting, we're talking about how you can't get to that place. That's why it's part three in the series, but we can't get to that place until we have safety and that that involves wholeness. And so I wanted to hurry up and start recording before we got into any more awesome conversations. So Kate, I'm going to give you a chance to kind of reintroduce yourself to everyone and rock and roll. All right. Thanks for having me back. Of course. As she said, I'm Kate Shipp. I'm a holistic trauma specialist and energy intuitive. So I work in the holistic modalities. So yoga therapy, breath therapy, energy medicine, coaching, spiritual direction. I cover a wide range of therapies, but mostly I help people remember their wholeness and embody their holiness. And so when Amy and I did the first one and we had, like she said, all these little tangents or pathways off of what we were talking about, kind of like a web, we were discussing the the need to be able to understand, name, and process our emotions in order to get to what part three will be, which will be sex and healing um, sexual trauma and how we navigate pleasure and safety after having had some experiences that may have disconnected or harmed us in that way. And then in general, just as life progresses and we have families and relationships and businesses and how we keep things alive in the bedroom um, or out of the bedroom, I guess, so to say. Uh, But first, you know, as she was talking about in the beginning, we, we started having this conversation around safety and in order to experience pleasure in life in general, that we have to have a connection to a sense of safety within ourselves. And I think this this is a whole thing I teach on regularly and it's so much more than what we can cover in this time, but we'll do our best to I think break it down and help you get some tangible and practical resource too. Cause I think there's a lot of conversation that can be had. And I think if you're anything like myself, you read a lot, you learn a lot, you're always like taking in information and then there's like, what do I do with this now? You know, how do yeah, I, I think we could all stand to have a lot less info and a lot more implementation. Yes. A lot more action. It's great to learn. Mm-hmm. And we all, you know, yeah, it's emotionally easier to take on learning than to actually have to go do. So that said, like, I mean, I think we're going to talk about safety and like, I a hundred percent agree that, and you were saying pleasure, which applies. It's not just about the sex, right? Anything to feel joyfully, We have to feel painfully. And a lot of us avoid that Enneagram seven here. And I would really rather not um, deal with negative emotions um, and processing grief. And we talked about that some a little bit last time, but 
what would you, you do talk about this and teach us all the time, Kate. So maybe where would you even start? If someone's like, oh, I've done a little counseling, I'm aware of this little bit of grief, or I've processed this thing. But if they're wondering what's actually talking about feeling safe, like I'm safe, I'm in my house, I'm whatever. Where would you even start with leading somebody on this journey? I always start with educating on the nervous system. And I think it's like, I feel it is the most missed point of education for children, for adolescents, for high schoolers and beyond is, I mean, I know you speak so much on learning your anatomy, right? And I think this is another layer of that in relationship to how we experience the world within ourselves and around us is understanding the nervous system and how it works. And so safety being a function of the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve being your 10th cranial nerve that connects every organ in the body to your heart and to your brain. And it's, I look at it as a two lane highway and 80% of the information on this highway are coming from the body up to the brain, giving messages and information. And then 20% comes from the brain back down through the body. So this, those numbers actually pull from Stephen Porges' research on polyvagal theory. And I think it's so important to name this is because we could be, like you said, sitting at home, we're in our home, everything's fine. And all of a sudden we feel anxious. We're like, what, why? Like what is happening? And the nervous system has its own perception of experiences. And so he, Stephen Porges calls this neuroception. It's a term he coined, which is the nervous system's perception of the external environment and how it affects our internal experience. And when we start to understand that so much of what we're feeling and sensing is unconscious or subconscious, I think first and foremost, we're less likely to experience as much shame as people feel, as if it's because of them that they're experiencing this. And I look at it as our nervous system is like octopus tentacles all around us collecting data. And it's always sending that data in. And then the brain is evaluating that data based on everything in the past that we've been through and the outcomes that came from it. And so within nanoseconds, we're having an experience of something that may or may not be relevant to what's happening around us at that time. And I think even just understanding that puts a whole different lens of perception on anxiety or overwhelm or fear or any of those emotions that I think for a lot of people are really uncomfortable to experience. Well, I know we talked a little bit last time about how we've both gotten a little frustrated with how overused it's kind of losing its meaning, um, but triggered, but to stay on the polyvagal theory piece. um, And yeah, we do a lot of work. Yeah. Vegas Mm -hmm. is huge, but to stay on that for a minute, those are that's why, even though we don't love the word anymore, that's why we have these reactions or responses that may seem disproportionate. But I agree with you. Like, I feel like it's so valuable what you said about when we can understand that these things are coming from the un or subconscious, we're less likely to feel shame or to judge it, label it. We always want to label it, right? We want to know what the thing is so we can fix it, heal it, cure it, be done with it, whatever. And that awareness that was what we're really after. 
Um, I know we both toot that horn, but like, keep going with what you're sharing on. Okay. So now we've noticed the, the odd sensation, right? Whether it's the anxiety or tension that's built up or like all of a sudden we think we're fine, but then we snapped at somebody who said something and we're like, we're, we're just as surprised by our reaction as the person we snapped at. Let's keep going there. With so what's going once, on in the Vegas yeah, nerve once and how I, to stop once that. I teach that little I me, mean, it's a much longer portion in a session than what I just gave in this. But from there I go into I I took really my teachings from the Vedas, which is yoga teachings come from Vedic science. And then what I know about and studied on the polyvagal theory and then on trauma and created a very simple zero to 10 scale that I use for the nervous system. And I give this to every client. I give it in my trauma training program. And it's really quite simple. Like if we all are familiar with a zero to 10 model of pain, but Mm -hmm. this is a slightly different four to six would be what we called centered and regulated. Right. So if you write out zero on one end and 10 on another and then mark five in the middle, four and six, right between four and six is what's considered that ventral vagus nerve state where there's safe and social interaction. Right. And so we have this. I think of it like if you're if there's a teeter totter and that's the balance point. Right. And then we were designed intelligently, intuitively, right, by God to pendulate like a teeter-totter pendulates on each side. So when we're climbing up, right, and we're going to like eight, nine, or 10, that's the hyper-arousal, hyper-vigilance, anxiety, anger, rage, panic attack. And sometimes we go there really quickly, right? And sometimes it's a slow climb. And then on the opposite end of that, when we're going from four down to zero, two, one, and zero is shame, depression, numbing, shutdown, faint or freeze, the hypo arousal, the collapse response. So we are designed to pendulate for survival, right? The reaction responses. We are also designed for resilience to be able to bounce back to that four to six range. And resilience is really how quickly we bounce back from that which took us out of center. So I I educate in that simplicity so someone can then say to themselves, where am I on that scale, zero to 10? If I'm sitting watching TV and everything's good and then surge of anxiety, this happened a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, what is like, where did that come from? I'm like, I went from probably like a four or five, slightly relaxed, calm, engaged in socially with my family to anxiety, like flew up to like an eight or nine so quickly. I have no idea what it was. It wasn't something I watched. Maybe I had a thought that my system like captured and brought it back up. But because I was able to name that and like, okay, I'm at like an eight or nine, what do I need to do? What's the most loving thing I can do to downregulate, to bring myself back to center? So one of the things I always ask myself, and we talked about this last time, is, is my reaction relevant to the situation I'm in, right? Is there an actual threat response or am I overreacting, but my nervous system is perceiving something as unsafe? So I look at that four to six as the safety. Well, I want to pause there for a second. So I know this is something I used to struggle with. I love, so the scale's brilliant. That's such an easy handle to get on 
being able to kind of identify I'm up or I'm down. What do I need? But I used to really struggle with, I could notice I was up or down, not knowing why or not being able to name that used to really eat at me and bother me. Um, so I'm sure for some people, they struggle with that as well. Like not understanding, like, well, I have no reason to be crying or I, whatever, right. However we judge ourselves. It's lovely. Um, asking for a friend, (laughs) but why speak to that a little bit in terms of why that's not important, why the why is not important. So the ego's desire is always control, right? So I think of it that way is, and you named this before, where like fix, save, rescue, heal it, whatever is, is a control tactics. Like we always want to feel like we have some sense of control when we're working with trauma. Part of that is because it was out of our control. So when there's a trauma imprint in the nervous system, there's always a lack of feeling and control, no matter what had occurred. And so loss of control, loss of power is a symptom of trauma. And so when we're in those reactive states, like, I don't know why I felt anxious two weeks ago like that, right? And my brain wants to know why, because then it feels like it could change it and control it. But here's what's interesting. Knowing why doesn't resolve the energy that's happening within you. It simply makes it intellectual and analytical instead of somatic where we have to actually clear the energy out. And I think of it this way. If intellectualizing and analyzing and figuring out the why resolved anxiety, we wouldn't have the issues we have in our world. (laughs) We just wouldn't. So we can acknowledge, okay, I want to know why, and I can resolve it without knowing. So honoring that that. more like our brain thinks if I can figure out why I can tell them how not to touch the hot stove next time. Sure. It can tell mm-hmm. you what to avoid to not feel that way again, which yeah. isn't quite protection. how anything works. But yeah, the control, yeah. that makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. And so when it's something through the nervous system that doesn't have potentially a clear why, right? Sitting in my living room, everything's fine. Anxiety storm. There's no clear why. What is more important in that moment is taking care of myself. And so we're, I think we're programmed to look to what can I, how do I, what do I do to fix this, to resolve this, to make sure it doesn't happen again, instead of looking and tending to that, which is occurring right now, right? So the regulate, I call them regulation techniques, and there's a ton of them, right? There's the best regulation techniques work within 30 seconds to a minute. And so when sometimes it's, running through different ones to see what's the right one at that right time. And then a lot of times, Amy, people ask me, well, how come I can't remember what to do in those moments? And really that comes down to practicing the techniques when you're in a centered and safe state. And otherwise we don't have that memory recall on what to do to take care of ourselves. Awesome. Yes. Also good. Um, and I hope that everybody, it took me a minute to appreciate this when I got to this point in some different awareness and healing, but I hope you guys find it liberating that you don't need to know why. Check that off the to-do list. It doesn't hold value. And usually 
see, tell me if you agree with this piece, Kate, because most of these quote unquote triggers or whatever the things are that are happening are from the past. There's no value in the brain supposedly naming it to avoid it in the future. It's a thing that happened. It's a layer we have. And the best way to avoid it in the future is to not have it create that response. And we can get there with the somatic healing, with the techniques, with the nervous system regulation without ever naming it. Would you agree with that? 100%. I have had many clients over the years who really withheld their healing over wanting to know what happened and why. And it's heartbreaking to see because they will dig and dig and dig almost like they're their own excavation site to try and figure out what happened and why it happened in order to heal forward. And thankfully, that's not necessary. And in many ways, like I said, we'll withhold the potential for healing. And the more we have to talk about the story, the more likely we're going to get into that spirally pattern. And what I came to realize through my own journey was that the mind will block to protect you what it doesn't want you to remember. And if we trust that within ourselves, if I needed to know, I would know. And I can resolve this stuck energy that presents a sensation without needing to know. And I understand the like, well, I have to know, I want to know, how can I prevent it if I don't know? And I'm going to give a a different reframe on this that was helpful to me is from a resilience-based process, the best prevention is resilience. Because once we have the resilient nervous system to bounce back faster, we actually are growing our capacity to feel competent to overcome things. But if we get stuck in the loop and we never overcome, we will always be afraid of those hard things happening again. A hundred percent. Yes. And all the amens. Another part that breaks my heart. I'm sure you've seen this too. I have people, you were talking about people that withhold their own healing because they dig. I also know people who withhold their own healing because they don't want to know. And they think that the way through to healing is finding out and figuring out. And so I'm always trying to convey that to them. Also, it's like, you can't promise them that something's not going to come to their awareness. So I'm, I don't promise them they're not going to learn something hard or scary or painful, but also that they won't need to, and that the brain will protect them and that they can resolve and create that resiliency and the healing and without knowing. So I know some people on the other end too, that are, like they're scared to embark on that journey for themselves because they don't want to know just like the other people who feel like they have to know. And so I really hope you guys are grasping this and hearing this that, and I hope you hear it as good news because I definitely think it's good news to not, you're not necessarily going to have to rehash, relive, relearn, re-experience the best types of therapies don't lead you there. Your brain will, yeah, you already said it. I don't need to keep. But it's really, I mean, it's really important, I think, because every time I feel like it's much like anything, we have to hear it so many times in so many different ways from so many different voices. And then all of a sudden it lands, right? It kind of reminds me of, 
you know, all the thousands of hours of teaching yoga classes. And, you know, all of a sudden I cue one thing, one little way. And someone's like, oh, that's what that's supposed to, you know, be experienced at in that. And I, I think we're much the same. And there's, as someone who works in the somatic realm and energy, and I don't, I, people, I do a lot of coaching dialogue with people, but the story only takes you so far and then the story will keep you stuck. And then once we start using the body, it starts to unwind and clear that stuckness. And, you know, and the stuckness usually is held in the fascial tissue, like, you know, and creates all different types of body tension or armoring or bracing. And that's usually what people name when they tell me they're having these emotions, right? And I'm going to stick with anxiety because to me, it is an epidemic in our country. And it's the number one symptom people come to me with is anxiety. And they, and then I said, well, what, how do you know you feel anxious? And they start labeling all these body-based symptoms. They start labeling a tight stomach or sweaty palms or their throat feels like it's closing or their brain foggy or a headache or their legs feel weak or, you know, there's tension in their shoulders, their neck, their jaw, like name it, it's there. And so they're labeling the body-based symptoms of this energy called anxiety that's trying to get their attention. And so to then just start going at anxiety is actually not going to be helpful. So I'm going to circle this back to the safety piece is we actually have to reestablish safety and regulation before I can access within them why the anxiety is there. It's kind of like when someone's super anxious and you're like, well, you just calm down. Like never does that ever work. I think of Taylor Swift's song, right? Like you need to calm down. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. So what we have to do is downregulate zero to 10 anxieties, eight or nine, right? We need to bring the system back down a little bit, right? And to then center into a safe enough experience to evaluate and process the energy of anxiety. And so the safety is primary goal number one. And it's safe enough because I don't think it's fair or realistic to say that anyone at any point in their time consistently feels 100% safe. So I think it's using different languaging or do I feel safe enough in this moment to continue to process this? You know, So I've seen Amy in my own personal life for healing work. And that is something that I appreciate about what she and her colleagues have done is the languaging used is always consent and permission-based and always allows for renegotiation of safety during the session, which is optimally necessary, especially doing the type of work that you offer in your practice. Safety is not a one and done. It's a constant, to me, it's a constant renegotiation within ourselves and the environment around us. Yeah, obviously I agree 5,000%. Um, so again, on the vein of people need to hear things multiple times, I'm worried we sort of breezed past the nervous system reset and uh, what was the other piece? I was like, I want to make sure we come back to that. Oh, but the practicing it when things aren't fired up, that's how you sink in that ability to remember it when you need it. And I mean, I'm all for keeping a written cheat sheet somewhere too. Um, well, you know, Heather, she's about to host her nervous system resiliency yep. workshop November 4th, and she gives a written handout and I keep that sucker handy. But 
I didn't want to skip over too quickly. Um, and we can get into some of the specific techniques if you want, but like you said, there's so many ways, yoga, breath work, um, tapping, um, my fascial release. Like we offer the TRE sessions here, which is tension and trauma releasing exercises mm-hmm. that facilitate that somatic connection. And guys too, don't get hung up on the word somatic. I know that gets thrown around a little bit too. It's just your body. It just references the physical pieces. Um, whereas like something could be mental, could be emotional that the somatic just means we're tapping into the physical part of it, the felt sense. Um, so I wanted to clarify that too, but, but practicing those techniques when you don't need them, or when it's like a six, like I'll use some of them even after a workout just to help my recovery or because I need to quickly transition into having it together at work because <clears throat> I don't leave myself enough time to cool down. But anyway, um, so using them when you're not in crisis is a hundred percent the best way. What's something simple we could, would give everybody. Um, I think this one of the simplest ways is there's just the butterfly hugs is one of the best soothing techniques where, I mean, I know you guys can't, Amy and I are on Zoom and can see each other, but you guys can't. But the best way is just to place your arms around your hands around yourself like you're giving yourself a hug and gently rock side to side. And you can then alternate lifting one hand up and the other like you're tapping gently on your upper arms and continuing to rock back and forth. So rocking and swaying helps clear the inflammation out of the vagus nerve and helps calm and soothe. So figure like you're holding a baby and you're rocking it and you're swaying, you're doing that for yourself in that moment. Um, There's that. I like to do a breath technique where you inhale and you hold the breath in at the top and then you hit the tip of the tongue to the top palate of the mouth and you hum or make a sound as you exhale with your mouth closed and then swallowing at the end, which is what gets the vagus nerve through your throat. And then you repeat that. Some people don't like to make sound out loud in that way. So even just the inhale, tongue to tip of the mouth, exhale very slow through the nose, and then swallowing will help calm and soothe. Like that's a technique that can be done at any place, any time, and no one really knows what you're doing. Um, I have a trick for that, actually. Consider that I wanted, as you were talking about, yep. you know, working this when we're not in crisis, you guys, I think of this as we want to build the muscle of resilience. And in order to build the muscle of resilience, we have to train ourselves in the times where we're not in battle. Right. And so when we're in that triggered response, activation response, whatever you want to call it, it feels like an inner battle. And we want to have the tools readily available because we've been in training for this. So, you know, we put ourselves in training for all different things, whether we're training for something for, you know, working out, we want to build strength. We want to build our cardiovascular system. We want to build our ability to speak well, you know, whatever it might be, there's training. I teach intuition work. I call it intuitive training, right? We're developing this. So your nervous system, especially if you grew up with complex trauma or childhood developmental trauma, which is the more appropriate term for it, your nervous system wasn't birthed and grown and developed in a healthy, connective way. So you need to redevelop it through training. So a lot of this is 
nervous system training techniques to help promote the experience of safety within your body. And that in and of itself can take a lot of time. And I have found people like, you know, we're in this instant gratification world, right? We want it when we want it, as we want it, like right now and right now again. And unfortunately, the nervous system doesn't work that way. And it works on patterns and programs. So we have to repattern it and reprogram it. And the only way to do that is consistently over time. So there's, for those that, you know, one of the things I give as resource through my website, which is just kateship.com, anytime someone signs up for my newsletter, they get an eight page packet on the nervous system and regulation practices. And there's practices for down-regulating and up-regulating. And then practices, you're like, I don't know if I'm an eight or a two right now. I just need something. There's, there's a whole list of them That's on awesome. there um, that can help. Because I remember that feeling of like, I don't know what to do and when. So you may think this is silly and I'm 100% serious. I wrote out like on post-it notes, all the different practices and tore them. And then I put them in a container, like a jar. And so when it was in that moment of feeling triggered, because I used to suffer greatly all day long, you guys, with complex PTSD symptoms. And it was like, I could pull one out and it would tell me what to do. I didn't have to think. It was like my regulation bucket. (laughs) Like, okay, 25 jumping jacks, go. And if after those 25 jumping jacks, I didn't feel myself closer to center, I would do something else. I'd pull another one out. So there's ways to help yourself increase your capacity for safety. You'll hear it referred to as your window of tolerance or your, I like the term circle of capacity. I don't think we want to live in tolerant energy all the time. Um, There's ways to do this where it's not fearful. It's more of another layer of tending to your well-being so that you can handle stressful situations in healthier ways. You know, I love, I love the words capacity and resilience. Um, Yeah. Tolerance to me fits like the same thing. I don't want to just be living. I want to be thriving or I don't want to just be surviving. I, I like capacity. So two quick things. One, you guys can see us if you go to YouTube. So the podcast with video is on the YouTube channel. Um, Change the conversations. So that's that. And then also, if you're worried about humming in front of people, I taught the kids this because we teach hum and swallow too. I taught the kids, I don't don't think they'd do it, but for like test taking and you don't want to sit there at your desk humming for whatever that would indicate to people. But I just taught them. So they inhale. And again, like she said, tongue at the top of the roof of the mouth or like behind the front teeth, lips lightly closed. And as you, instead of humming, <clears throat> you can create that same kind of vagus nerve throat vibration. And you just sound like you're clearing your throat. You can only do that once or twice. And then it would, that would get almost as weird as humming, but just a little trick there. Um, it's very calming. I've taught the kids that like, if we're in the car, I remember one time going to school and this ladder flew up out of a landscaping truck in front of us and landed on the freeway right as we were about to exit. I swerved, hopped on the highway patrol line, let them know a ladder was in the road. We were almost to Taylor school. I was like, all right, guys, hum and swallow. Thankfully, they already knew it. So I didn't have to teach it to them right down. But like, we all needed to just calm back down from that adrenaline surge. And again, 
Is that major trauma? No. Is that something that might trigger me on the freeway another day? Maybe it all ended fine and safely. So maybe not probably depends on my overall resiliency. And if I have any other layers related to driving, swerving or ladders, but so all that to say, yes, practice these all the time. There are tons and tons. It's interesting. I didn't really know the hug. I had learned, I think from Heather, actually, another the time butterfly tapping. the butterfly tapping. And that's one of the ones I'll use after a workout and just mm-hmm. calm down. And I love to, again, another piece I don't want to skip over is what Kate said about when the technique. So even like, I love the bucket of, of regulation too. Um, if you're not sure what you need and you try something, it should be taking your number in the right direction in that 30 to 60 seconds. So this is not something that's going to take you all day to figure out. If you try something and it either makes it worse or doesn't really help, go the other direction. So if you tried the, I can't think of a scenario what I would need to do jumping jacks, but I almost always need to come down. <laughs> but if you tried the breathing deeply and it you felt worse, then maybe you do need the jumping jacks or vice versa. And so I just, I wanted to kind of reiterate that because I think it was brilliant genius and it was, we, we kind of just kept moving. Um, yeah, and you, you named something that in your story about what happened on the highway or the street highway that is so important. And I use this almost daily with myself. I use it with clients every single day for sure is the statement, and I was okay. So giving mm. the ending to yes. anything that happened, and Amy did that so beautifully. She was like, well, maybe if I'm on the highway and something, she goes, and it ended okay. We were all right. We forget the ending when we're stuck in the middle piece of the story. And nope. so just naming, and I was okay. And okay doesn't mean you felt good or that it went the way you wanted it to. It meant you survived. Basically, and I was okay meant I I survived. I lived through it, which we've all lived through that, which we've gone through up until this point and are living through whatever it might be right now. So, and I was okay gives us permission for capacity, This really intense moment occurred or this really intense experience occurred and I was okay, which signals resilience for the nervous system. Yeah. It's a reset. Yeah. Yeah. We do that with the myofascial dialoguing too. It's like John Barnes, who's my mentor and teacher makes a very big deal about when someone's in story and they're processing and there's progress, movement, transition, whatever you shifts, um, helping them land on either in this moment, I'm okay. Even if they're still in something, you're not minimizing or diminishing or dismissing what happened. Mm -hmm. But like you said, bottom line is you're still alive. You might not be happy. You might not be where you want to be, et cetera. But in this moment, I am safe in this moment. I'm okay. I survived. Yeah, you're right. In the moment of telling the story, I didn't even realize I did that. But yeah, that's very, very critical. Like you said, it signifies resilience and capacity. It also gives you, it's almost a way of giving yourself permission to move on. I think sometimes you you can speak to even more experience with this probably, but we all know people who are stuck in the story, like you were talking about with like, you become your own excavation site. Um 
I've, whether it's a label of a diagnosis or a label of a trauma or whatever that thing is, um, it's also gotten labeled victim mindset, which I, I don't love for a lot of reasons, but when, when people are stuck, let's just stay there. Right. So they're stuck that they don't have permission. They almost feel too much guilt. Like grief's a great example of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we lose a loved one, we almost aren't sure we have permission to feel joy again. We almost aren't sure we have permission to move on and moving on or healing isn't forgetting. It's, it's almost like the whole forgiveness thing. You're not saying what happened was okay. You're just cutting yourself loose from the chains of carrying that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Any thoughts you want to share on that? I have so much I can share on that. So if you, watch, <laughs> if you listened or watched the last one, you oh, know, right? that I've been in a grief journey myself um, for almost a year now. So uh, my dad passed in January and it was um, fairly unexpected and sudden for all of us. And what I, and so it's interesting that we're bringing this up and talking about safety. Cause what I came to realize these past few months was my dad was the energy of safety as a human in my life. And so losing him also felt like a sense of my safety went away. And one of my mentors, Sunny Don Johnston, helped me realize that it was like my safety pathway through my vagus nerve almost was clogged. Like there was a traffic jam <laughs> there, right? To go with the highway metaphor that seems to keep me showing up for us. And so there was this traffic jam and it was like safety was no longer able to flow through me because this really critical loss occurred. And so as I've been renegotiating safety in my life, and I wrote these words down, I I take notes as I write because it helps me. And one of the things I wrote down, and this is important for everyone to understand, is you can be safe and not feel safe at the same time, right? So you can be safe, but something in you is like, but I don't feel safe. I know I'm safe, but I don't feel safe. So being and feeling become separate in that. So I know in my heart, in my mind, all of it, that I am safe most of the time in my life. And with the loss of my father, there was a sense of not feeling safe anymore because of what he provided in many layers of being in my world. And so there's, and some people I'm very connected spiritually. Those that know me know this. I connect to him spiritually every day. So that protective spiritual safety is there. That's not what I'm talking about. So it's important to recognize that we can have this great loss and therefore it affects our nervous system's perception of our reality. And then because of that, it can affect how safe we feel or we don't feel. And then that leads into what you were talking about this, like, are we going to give ourselves permission? Am I going to give myself permission to have great joy? Right. Again, after such great loss. And part of why I love you brought this in is I do a journal to him often and I have it called a dear dad journal. And I'll write to him as if I'm talking to him and then I'll write as if he's responding. And so one of the beautiful things in the response that has come very recently, right, was when you get to heaven, I want to hear all the stories of joy and adventure that you had during while I wasn't there. 
I don't want to hear about like the sadness and all of that, right? My hope for you is a life of joy. And that was a really meaningful connection moment because he and I talked a lot about gratitude and joy when he was in his cancer treatments. And so to me, it was like this beautiful cathartic loss, beautiful things that have happened for me and my life and my family this year, even with that loss and this renegotiation of safety and this choice to say, you know, when I get where I'm going, what stories do I want to tell? Right. And letting that be a driving motivator for how I choose to show up each day now. Uh, And for it's helped. It's helped me in the past couple of weeks greatly to have that understanding. Yeah. I had a therapist do that. That's what made me emotional. I had a therapist do that for me when I was processing stuff about my aunt dying. And if you guys have never, it doesn't even have to be necessarily a death or a loss, but any kind of major conflict or, or shattering of a relationship, it's the letter back. Where in your spirit, you know what they would say, but you hadn't let it come to your conscious awareness. And man, can that save you a crap ton of time of suffering and wallowing and wondering. Write the letters, guys. Um, That was brilliant. I had another aha before you got to that part. I don't know if you saw me. I had to take a really deep breath as some other awareness came over me. But um, really great stuff. Uh, I was going somewhere before the letter thing that I wanted to ask you about. Oh, I think a key part I want to circle back to, you were talking about your dad passing. Obviously, anybody can understand why the loss of a parent would be really challenging and painful. But even more, I want to dive into a little bit. You said it was also sudden and unexpected. And I definitely know anytime where I feel, I use the word blindsided a lot. Um, when I look at, when I overreact excessively, there's often a component of feeling blindsided. That's a definitely a major trigger for me. Rug pulled out from under you, same kind of feeling. When we feel the rug has been pulled out from under us, whatever that is, aside from processing the circumstances around whatever did that, how do we regain our footing? So I, I, I've thought about this a lot lately. And to me, it's, I go back to the basics every time, right? And my basics for me is like, how am I sleeping? Am I moving my body? What am I eating? What am I watching or listening to? And who am I connecting with? Because those things for me, if those, if those are being filled well, I will find my footing more easily. And part of The who am I connecting with for me is my spiritual life with God and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And like it's if I get the basics right, I'm much more likely to be able to navigate what was one of the greatest losses of my life. Right. In 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 the scope of the life that I've had. And I'm not new to grief. My journey of complex trauma was filled with grief. And however, the loss of this was my I've had other family members that I've lost grandparents, all of them. But this was the deepest loss I've experienced in the human form. And so it was it was foundational breaking 
in understanding. And again, my mentor said it to me, guys, it was so brilliant. She's like, you've never lived without him. You're not supposed to know how. Right. So it was one of those like your whole life. He's always been there. You're not supposed to know how to do this without him. You never have before. So you're carving new autonomy, new independence, new territory, which for me was one of my great triggers was like, I don't know how to do this. So then I have to learn and figure out how was so the feeling of not knowing. Right. And the feeling of like. We feel helpless, excited, helpless. Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. helplessness feeling. Like, yeah, okay, right. So there's, how do I navigate this? And so it's like back to the basics. I think about it. You know, I've been practicing yoga since 2007, and when I get on my mat, I don't just start in the most advanced poses. Every single day that I hit my mat, I start with breathing. I start with a prayer. I start with warming up my joints. I start with warming up my spine. I, it's it's a slow gain. <laughs> Until some of the, what I'll call bigger or more physically demanding postures. And if I were to start with those, I would hurt myself. So it's like, if I get the basics right, the rest usually goes a little bit better. If I skip the basics, I don't have a foundation to build on anymore. So it's, you know, the crumbling of what felt safe now has to be rebuilt. And I know we talked about this last time it's, and I'm not wanting to go all spiritual on you guys, but to me, the rebuild comes through faith and it comes through an anchoring into something far greater than me that dwells within me that allows for this relationship with safety to be renegotiated in a much healthier way. And so the, the experiences and the emotions of grief, which have been like laid out on my kitchen floor, not being dramatic and being serious, right? Sitting like at my kitchen, cooking something, boom, I'm on the floor bawling, right? For maybe three minutes, right? And then my dogs run over and they're trying to figure out what's going on because they have that sense about things, right? And there's ugly cry and all the things and you know, wiping puddles of tears up off my kitchen floor. And I get back up and I'm like, I always do hand on heart, hand on belly. And I'm like, okay, right? Like anchor me back in Mm -hmm. to this moment, right? And I also consider oftentimes grief is love masked with such huge emotion of missing, of longing. And so the energy of grief is most when it's the loss of a loved one that you were close to, there's so much love and longing and that creates that sorrow energy and, you know, being able to allow that permission to experience it without my mind going into the memories of the pain. And that to me was so beneficial because of the work I've done, my mind tends to take photographic memories of moments that aren't always helpful. So I've had to, can we stay here for a minute? So I was just going to ask you, and I think you're right there. Um, you've probably heard my little phrase of no settling, no suffering, no shame. As I've done some work and looked at what is suffering and where am I causing my own suffering I think it's a very fine line of the honoring healthy grieving 
not judging ourselves. Like what, what good is going to come? You're in a puddle on your kitchen floor. What good would it come from you saying I should be done crying by now? It's been six months or whatever stupid things we tend to believe or tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're so, so cruel to ourselves sometimes, but then there's also a line between honoring where you are and feeling the feelings because they're there. And if you don't feel them, they'll show up as back pain or headaches or rage or, or whatever. Right. But then I think this is where you're going, not allowing the pain of the memories. I think that's where people can get stuck in the suffering. They don't let go of, they wallow or hold on to or grip somehow, whatever perceived memory. I think you get where I'm going. So I'm going to let you take over. So because, so part of my, part of the way my brain used to collect trauma memories was through like a movie screen that you could pause and see the scene, right? Like Mm -hmm. in my mind's eye, that is as visceral as it would get and very detailed. And so as I learned to basically press play again and see the scene play out, right? And I was okay type of moments, right? I realized that in that, on the kitchen floor, in cathartic grief, waves there, my mind would end up taking me back to moments when I was in the hospital with him. And it would take me back to moments, right? You know, the few days sitting at his bedside for four days in a row, right? As as he was coming to the end of his life. And what I had to start telling myself was, he's not there and I don't have to be either. Mm. Right. Just that statement was so life-giving to me, recognizing he's not stuck there anymore in pain and suffering. I don't have to be either. And moving the timeline forward to recognize I was back in my kitchen floor, right? Still crying, but I wasn't in a flashback emotionally or mentally in any way to that which I couldn't change. So there was no way for me to change. And so getting myself to that space that said, he's no longer there suffering. And that was important for me to say to myself, right? He's no longer there suffering and I don't have to be either allowed me to come present moment, the emotion would clear. And then it was like, okay, now I'm back on calmer waters. And the moment I allowed for that naming, it was this, a soothing energy, like that safety energy, that soothing energy came back in. And, you know, we started this with talking about emotions and how do we feel safe in the nervous system is I'm not talking, I I don't believe that every human in this world has experienced safety. And I think with what's happening in our world right now, that would be unfair to say, because there are some places where they don't have the luxury and privilege and entitlement and all the things to feel safe. And um, I've had depth conversations with this with some colleagues. And if we've been so blessed to have those moments, then being able to take ourselves in there in a memory that says, when have I felt really safe? And what did that feel like within me to know that I felt safe? And being able to map that verbally or on paper, when I feel safe, I experience this, right? What? And I'll just name that for you right now. When I feel safe, my belly is soft and relaxed. There's no clenching. Right? My jaws relaxed and soft. My shoulders are like melty instead of this, which used to be my bracing posture all the time. 
right? I can feel my hands relax and release. My toes are relaxed. They're not crunching in my toes or like in my shoes in any way. So there's somatic ways. And it's almost like in my pelvis, it drops instead of this like clingy, tensiony feeling. So I have what I consider a visceral, so body sense of safety. And then I also know the opposite. What does feeling unsafe experienced as in my body? And I think if we can, even if you can name that for yourself, you're far into this understanding your nervous system more than you think you are. And we want the goal isn't avoidance of emotion, guys. It's not every time I feel anxious, I need to calm down, right? It's being able to say, I can be centered and experience the emotion of anxiety without reacting to it. For so sure. yeah. if we're in that four to six, then I can evaluate the anxiety from this place of clearing and processing. But if I'm hypervigilant and paranoid and anxious, I can't do anything for myself really well in that moment. So there's the, I call it this both and, and it's really the definition of emotional intelligence is being able to name and notice what you're experiencing and feeling without reacting to it. I remember trying to explain that to somebody about the hum and swallow, because I think it came across as a shutting down almost. And it's like, no, 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 we're not shutting off the grief. We're not shutting off the tears. We're not shutting down. We're just regulating so we can be more clear. So the lens isn't so skewed. Um, I love how you, again, circling back again. Um, I love how you talked about when that rug's been yanked out from under us and we are trying to regain some footing, the basics. And one of my unhealthy patterns that I've had to recognize and then chip away at changing was that tendency to just keep going. Um, it was like, well, it is what it is. So I'm just going to keep going. And that prolongs the sevens and eights. And it, even I can think of a situation where I was acknowledging and I was grieving well, but I didn't have the level of awareness to recognize that I'd lost, like you were saying, I've never known how to, I've never had to live without him and I don't know how. So of course it's fine that I don't know how, because it's new. And I think there was a piece where I didn't recognize, I grieved the loss. I didn't recognize the loss of footing to the full extent. So I didn't reground to the full extent. I just was like, well, I just have to keep going. And so what are some ways, I mean, I think, again, it comes back to practicing it when it's not critical, but do you have any other advice or tricks for remembering those basics or learning how to take better care of ourselves in those moments? I think for me, what I have found is if Every morning, right? I go through this practice for myself and I'm not a huge morning routine person, you guys. I actually found morning routines to be really triggering and created their own trauma response. Mm -hmm. And that the pressure of a morning routine can actually cause someone with complex PTSD to feel really unsafe Mm because it feels like control pressure instead of 
flowy, healthy, and healthy, safe, life-giving response, right? So first and foremost, I do not get out of bed in the morning until I'm in that centered, grounded, regulated state, right? I sit in bed and I breathe or I pray or I move my body to make sure that the moment I sit up, I'm in that more regulated state. And then I always say something I can do for myself physically, something I can do for myself mentally, emotionally, spiritually in the morning, right? What are those four things? And it might change every day. So I do have a really dedicated breathwork practice every morning before I get out of bed. I do at least 10 minutes of what's called circular breathing. And that to me is a reset. I dream very lucid. I have a lot of intense dreams. I have my whole life. So sometimes when I wake up, I'm like, whew, right? Like that was a wild ride. And so I have to, I breathe to recenter myself before I get up. And then my prayer is my spiritual time. My mental emotional time is usually just, even while I'm brushing my teeth for two minutes, right? Like affirmation work in my mind Mm -hmm. as I'm looking in the mirror. Right. And then I always take time on my patio after my kids get off to school. I have coffee. I sit on my patio. I hang with my dogs. Right. Sometimes my husband joins me depending on his work schedule. That nature time is for my mental, emotional health. And it's the that setting time for me to stay like, okay, now what is my day going to bring? And how can I approach that from a clear place? I'm not always calm, but I'm clear. And that's what I've noticed for myself. If I'm clear, I can feel more safe. Calm and safety to me are not hand in hand Mm -mm. because sometimes I can be like, in order for me to play and like have fun and be silly, I need to feel safe. That's not calm energy though. So I think there is this misperception of safe is calm and that's not true. And so regulated also doesn't mean calm. It means centered and clear emotionally aware, but reasonably present. And so I want to link some of this to what we started talking about at the beginning as we, you know, prep for a part three coming at some point is the sex talk, guys, is if we don't have attunement and attention to our nervous system, where are we on that zero to 10? If we aren't aware of how it feels to feel safe enough in this capacity of our resilience, then to move into sexual intimacy in any way could throw us off the edge of, I mean, it might not just kick us off the teeter-totter completely, right? And that's not even layering in potentially traumatic or uncomfortable experiences around sex. So that is, I, I wanted to set this up in part two to understand a lot of people have like a big, urge for intimacy and sexual connection, but their nervous system reacts in opposition. Do you notice that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if they don't have the ability to notice what's happening within them, they might think something's wrong with them or blame their partner or like you said, you want this and now what's going on. And it it becomes so damaging. Which just adds messy layers wicked fast. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that, that if we can have, if we can use practices that increase our capacity to to stay centered, to handle stress more easily, there's a visual that I use. I've shared it on social media a lot. You can find it on my Instagram page. It looks like, um, four containers of water, right? So, uh, 
you could do this for yourself and it actually can be really, really powerful. If you, if you take a measuring cup of one cup of water and then put it in a uh, one cup container, right? And it's going to fill to the brim, right? And I look at that as you're close to being what we'll call flooded, right? You're almost at that zero or 10, you're at your capacity. But if we take that one cup of water and we put it in a two cup container, it's only half full. So the water represents stress load. And that one cup of water, the same stress load in a two cup container still has a lot of space. And then if we take that same one cup of water and we put it in, let's say, an eight cup container, right? Now the stress load is much more minimal to the space of awareness that's there. And then I put it in like a very large pitcher of water so you can barely see the one cup of water. So the stress load hasn't changed. What has changed is the capacity to handle it. And I think that's one of the mistakes people make is like, I got to decrease stress. I got to get rid of this. I got to get rid of this. Like maybe, and maybe there's space to increase your container. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really what's at the heart of resilience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, An increased container. I think it's so great to put such tangible language around something that can start to feel so big. It's like, well, how do I heal? And how do I get over this? And how do I grow? And it can start to spiral pretty quickly. And, you know, I do like a morning routine, but I get what you're saying a hundred percent. And that burden of needing one or that all successful people have this. And it's like, well, and I'm sure some of you heard Kate start to talk about her routine and I'm, I would venture to guess you guys are glad we can't see you. Cause I would bet there were immediate eye rolls and like immediate, well, of course she has that together or, oh gosh, that would be nice. I can't, you know, right. Like our brain just freaks out, but just take a second. If you really go back and break down what she said, we're talking about maybe 10 minutes bed and toothbrush and maybe another 10 outside. This is not unreasonable. This is not unmanageable. This is not magic tools for only the rich and successful. This is not, this is very achievable. And like a lot of things in life, I think may not necessarily be easy, but are pretty simple. And in this case, I actually think it is pretty easy. Takes a little bit of effort initially because it's not part of your routine yet. But I mean, gosh, 10 deep breaths before you roll out. And I tend to stumble to the bathroom and kind of regain my equilibrium there. But how much more powerful could we be with just one or two key questions, five to 10 deep breaths? And how do I want to feel today? What do I want? I even have those Brendan Burchard journals. I haven't been using it lately, but I think it asks like, how do you want to show up today? Like, and do you have a key word for today? And just taking a minute to think about how can you feel your best today? How can you be your best self? And again, not in a should kind of burden way, not in a put on a fake face to the world kind of way, in a taking charge of an ownership of the reality you're creating for your life and for yourself and for the people around you. And I think one thing that came up when I was recording the sex workshop that I hope this is doing also is to put some language, you know, how easy would it be to use this year to 10 scale with your kids and your partner and just, and are like, guys, my buckets, 
I'm close to overflowing. I need a minute. Um, some of these ways that we can communicate and take better care of ourselves, which ultimately takes care of those around us because then we're not exploding and we're not overflowing and we're not um, just like emotion vomiting all over everyone around us. Yes. I want to name that, you know, I know you have a large audience of moms and having two kids myself, you know, they're 16 and or 17, he's 17 now, 17 and 14. And remembering when they were really little and I was so overwhelmed and it was like the thought of having five minutes to myself was the most amazing thing ever and not realistic at times. And I have had conversations with people where they're like, how did you find the time to heal yourself? And unfortunately for me, it took a breakdown, right? It took a complete, what I'll call nervous system breakdown, uh, to finally recognize that I was worth taking the time to take care of. It doesn't have to get to that point. I think oftentimes as women, as mothers, we wait till something goes very wrong to start treating ourselves right. And what I'm going to encourage you is include your kids in this, right? Make the regulation bucket together and put fun things in there that you can do. Blowing bubbles, you guys, is a vagus nerve technique, right? So just the act of inhaling and having to blow bubbles stimulates your vagus nerve. Right. Having things in this idea bucket that like, let's say your kids are just like off the wall and you're and you want to scream at them. And it's just one of those moments. Right? Imagine going outside with them or even in your living room, setting your phone timer for five minutes and saying, OK, five minute regulation break. Right. And you pull five things out of the bucket, one minute each, and you just do and they get to pull it out, too. And you just do them together. You're teaching them another way to manage really big feelings without freaking out, right? Or going outside and having a soccer ball in your backyard and either a net or a wall, and you're just kicking the ball. Because when we kick with our legs, we're clearing that stuff. That's another regulation tool in that way. And so it's, I, I think sometimes we're like, oh, I have to be away from my family to do all of this work. The deeper pieces you need the time dedicated for you, moment to moment in your day to day. If you're, you know, if you're a stay at home parent, if you're home with your kids in the evening and you're like, I need a breather, right? It's not separate from, it's inclusive with family and figure out ways that help you to do that. Throwing a ball, like a soft ball, it back and forth is bilateral stimulation for the brain. Right? And that can help just move some of the energy right, in healthy ways with your kids. The other one that I love right, is inhale, smell the roses, exhale, blow on the soup. Right, So inhale, smell the roses, exhale, blow on the soup. Right, We all know those patterns and kids get it right away. And so you're empowering them and encouraging them to be able to build resilience really young instead of watching and figuring out that freak out is a healthy option, right? And we're all going to freak out, but there's so many other beautiful ways to support changing the dynamic in the household around really big experiences too. I definitely wish I'd had some of these tools when the kids Me were Me too. <laughs> but yeah, I'm even thinking of a conversation I had with Taylor this morning and I was frustrated and I just called her and I said, listen, this is why I'm recommending this. 
take it or leave it. It's your decision. I'm done having this conversation over and over again. I was like, it's up to you. This was my train of thought of why I made this suggestion. It's your decision. And we hung up and I could tell she wasn't okay, but she said she was. And so I was like, well, okay. And then she texted me. I'm just really overwhelmed about da, 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 da. So I'm excited to go back to her tonight and share some of what we're talking about in terms of, of course you are. And I somewhat said that back to her. I said, of course you are. I said, you're learning to navigate this, this, and this for the first time. And this is not automatically structured for you anymore. So you're having to figure out how to choose it for yourself. And I was like, and that's new and it could feel hard. So I'm proud of her that she could even recognize already and name I'm overwhelmed because of this and this and just give her some of these tools so that I mean I was kind of trying to do that but again rather than solve it for her and I told her I said it calms me to do this so I have all of this information so I can prioritize and choose that might not be what works for you so I did say that already but I was like but I don't know what would work for her and I mean my baby turned 18 Sunday. I was like, so do I not say I have two children now because she's technically my adultron? Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a whole new part of the journey too, is like, you're an adult um, and it's time to navigate some big things, but we can all use these tools at all levels. And yeah, man, the kicking the ball and whether you need to go do it or even having the kids do it to get some yeah. of that energy out or the jumping jacks or, you know, gosh, all these kids getting labeled with ADD and ADHD, not to minimize those genuine diagnoses, but when a lot of it is just, we're not taught how to manage our big feelings and our big energy and everyone's expected to do things in a very cookie cutter manner when no two of us are the same at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And w- again, like at the beginning, we were talking about how safety is so personal. And so if you have a family of four, I have a family of four. And what creates a sense of safety for each of us is subtly different. And in some ways, really different based on how our brains and our nervous systems function. So it's important to recognize that each person in your life that's important to you may need different signals for safety. And that it's not what feels safe for you might not feel safe for them, but then we can negotiate this experience and co-create this experience of safety together. Yep. Love it. Such great stuff. We should probably find a way to wrap up. Mm -hmm. Um, So out of all of the things that we've talked about and starting with trauma and grief and now today talking about processing big emotions and trying to find that sense of safety before we move on to sex and the next episode what would you say is the piece about changing the conversation around big emotions you're most passionate about the nervous system and the scale the 0 to 10 because i think it's a yep. tangible tool that's easily easily implemented that can create a huge ripple effect in your family, in your circle of friends, just for you to be able to name, all right, I'm at a three. I'm starting to feel a little depressed, a little shame. I'm not engaging in life in the way I used to, right? And that's where we need, you know, more activating exercises to bring our energy up a little bit. And so just that tool, I mean, 
the trauma training that I teach, the first three steps, it's a seven step method. The first three steps, that's all we do is focus on this with the nervous system. And it's because if that has to happen first before anything else can occur, that is going to have sustainable healing effect within us. So I think if I could educate on the nervous system and just teach people how to manage that within themselves would be primary number one for me. Fair enough. It is a brilliant tool and one that I hope my family and I will get to discuss at dinner. Tonight's one of those rare nights. All four of us will be Mm -hmm. home to eat together. So Um, special. Oh, you know how rare those get. I was Mm -hmm. slightly teasing, not teasing Sunday because it was a little bit forced initially. um, We decided to all go to go up north to go see the leaves, but my sweet husband drove, which is a thing. And, um, it took us a long time to get home, but it was Taylor's birthday. So she partially got her way, but like the getting out in nature and the doing it was good for all of us, but it seems like there's always this little bit of battle to get out the door. Um, and I think I made some sort of comment, like one of these days, hopefully you guys will be look back and be glad that I forced all these happy memories on you or something like that. I was just like, we're going outside. We're going to go see the leaves. Like, you know, I'm like, sometimes it's frustrating that it feels like I have to fight for Mm -hmm. those memories and those experiences for us, but I'm grateful. And hopefully at some point they will be. (laughs) They, those are, I think it's, co-regulating moments, right? Moments where our nervous systems are working in harmony with each other are part of what we remember as safety. When I need, whenever I ask someone, tell me about times where you felt safe, it always involved another human, an animal or nature. Interesting. It's very rare that it's like, oh, I was on my own in this place. And like, it's usually there's a co-regulating energy with them in some way. I'm writing that down. And, and so speaking when, of writing down in show notes, share yeah. again where everyone can find you. Of course, we'll have your website. So my Kate website Shipp. is Kate Ship. It's two P's like pumpkin, S-H-I-P-P dot com. Uh, so my website there, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Kate Ship 333. Uh, you can get that nervous system packet if you sign up for my emails, uh, my newsletters as well. I, people love the packet. It's just a great resource. And, um, you know, you can reach out by email at kate at kateship.com. Yeah, you guys. And a lot of times I still have a folder saved on my computer. I need to use it more. Um, sometimes she'll be offering some of her meditations free or really, really, really. Yeah, affordable. there are free meditations on my website always. So the safe space meditation, if you're someone who struggles with the experience of safety, it's free on my website. It's just called safe space. There's another one called Who God Says You Are, which is a list of biblical scripture words that I read as an affirmation and meditation. And all of these come from this trauma training that I teach uh, that is actually starting in January. I have open enrollment right now. So if anyone is interested in that, take a look at that on my website too. But you can get those meditations for free anytime on my website. And I give those because I don't feel like anyone should be without the capacity to have resource to take care of themselves. That's just one of my deepest yearnings is that people would have access to what they need for their healing to occur. 
Well, I'm very grateful for you. I'm very grateful for all the resources that you provide and all the teaching and support that you continue to put out into the world and over at Live Well Training Center, what you and Chrissy are up to and all the other practitioners you have there. So um, we'll put that to you guys. She's over at Live Well Training Center here in Glendale, Arizona. Um, but lots of online resources, even if you're out of state, don't be discouraged. And yeah, she's also got that practitioner training that is phenomenal. So we'll put that in your show notes. Stay tuned, you guys, because we will have part three coming up in the not too distant future when we are done recording right now. Hopefully we can get that scheduled, Mm -hmm. but, um, we'll be talking about sex, which is one of my favorite change the conversation topics. So stay tuned, like subscribe, all the things, share it out. This was a really, really good one. You guys, please share this with friends. We want everybody to have these basic resources and tools. We all have greater capacity and healing within us, and we're definitely here to help. So much love to you, lady, and to all of you guys listening until next time.